John 5, verses 19 through 24. This is the word of God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son... does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, um, what a privilege it is to come to you and and call you Father. We know you're God, and yet we can also be called your children, even though we know we don't deserve that title. It's only because of what your Son has done. Uh, What a blessing it is to know the salvation that you give, to be part of that. And please help us to see your glory and your word now and to worship you for it. In your name, amen. Please be seated. All right. All right, so probably half of you are going to grill out today. It's uh, Father's Day is one of the most popular days each year to grill. Dads, about 75% of you will probably get something either from a hardware store, outdoor recreation, or for clothing. And if you have daughters, statistics show that you get something that's 50% more expensive than if you have sons. So, and... So around, around $15 billion was spent surrounding today. It makes it the fifth most uh, expensive day of the year, and it's trumped by Mother's Day, which comes in around $23, million, or $23 billion. So note the 50% increase on that one, too. Um, but this information's too late for you to go out and make any purchases, but uh, one survey showed that dads preferred uh, first electronics, followed by tools, and then beer, and then outdoor recreation equipment. They all voted candy and ties as the worst kind of gift, which is ironic, because neckties are always the most frequently purchased gift every year. So people aren't listening, I guess, to that. Um, So despite the $15 billion that uh, surrounds today, Father's Day was never meant to be a moneymaker at its outset. Um, It was founded to actually recognize the trend and the influence of fathers on their families. And uh, trends have changed there, actually. If you, they, they looked at statistics of how much time fathers spend with their families, and it's about double the amount of time today than it was in 1989, and almost triple that in 1965. So a little bit of background on Father's Day. It was actually founded first on, uh, in 1910 by a daughter of a Civil War vet who raised six kids on his own. It was first celebrated at the YMCA, different routes back then, um, and she proposed June 5th, which was his birthday, but the pastors didn't have enough time to prepare their sermons, so it got bumped back to the third Sunday of the month, which is why we have it the third Sunday every month now. 
Um, so Father's Day actually didn't get much traction for about three or four decades. Uh, Congress rejected three different proposals on uh, making it an official day because people resented what had become of Mother's Day. Basically, uh, Hallmark and candy makers had hijacked that one. Um, but nevertheless, Father's Day, it kept being pushed and pushed by uh, tobacco makers and by neckties. So that's why we have the neckties today. Um, but Father's Day, it was first officially uh, proclaimed or, um, by Lyndon B. Johnson in 1966. And then it was actually signed into law by Nixon in 1972. That's 58 years after Mother's Day had been around. Um, but the well-meant origin, it didn't last very long. About 15 years later, Father's Day Council wrote, Father's Day has become a second Christmas for all the men's gift-oriented industries. So hopefully Father's Day means something more to you than just exchanging gifts. And I know that no one here has had a perfect dad, um, and then probably many haven't had even a great dad, and some of you wish you had a different dad. But not Jesus. Jesus actually did have the perfect dad. And Jesus, perhaps he would have advocated for this day. He wouldn't have bought the pipe or the tie. But throughout his whole life, he was clear in his zeal for honoring the Father above all else. And today's passage pertains to Jesus and his Father. It is one of the most detailed passages in the whole Bible on the relationship between Jesus and his Father. We learn a lot from it. We learn about the unity that they share, their different roles, the son's submission, Um, One writer, uh, John Ryle, he asserted that our passage is of critical importance, remarking that perhaps it lacks the expressions like bread of life or the I am sayings, but its central theme is crucial. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship. And so... Our passage today contains some great theological truths about Jesus and the Father. Jesus reveals a lot about who he is, about his identity, his authority, his purpose. And our response to these truths today should be one of submission and trust and worship. Not only is this passage key theologically, but it's actually pretty unique too. It's a lengthy monologue. It's it's actually the longest uninterrupted speech that Jesus has to one of his opponents, Um, And one interesting piece that I learned from a commentary was about the specific functions of monologues in narrative literature in particular. They're not just select recorded speeches that they decided to write down, but they have a purpose. Their purpose is to move the narrative from one story or a theme to the next story or a theme. So they serve to actually advance the narrative. They can't be disassociated from what it began with and what it's finishing on. Those are very connected to the monologue in between. And keep in mind, Gospels, they're not meant to be comprehensive chronological biographies. They're very selective narratives with material that's often organized thematically rather than sequentially to communicate a specific point. So in other words, if you think about it, when you read the Gospels, often you find all the parables together, or you'll find all the healing miracles together, or you'll find all the Sabbath controversies together. It's not because they happen back to back, but it's because all these things communicate a similar point that the author is trying to get across. So sometimes a monologue like ours today will serve as a transition between different themes or a connector between them. So let's look at the function of the monologue that we're studying today. What was the cause of our monologue here? If you look at verse 19, it starts with the word so. So obviously this is connected to what just happened. It's a direct response to the flack or the hatred that Jesus was getting for working on the Sabbath. 
Earlier in this chapter, Jesus had healed the man at the pool on the Sabbath, and he violated Jewish law. Our passage is really just a continuation of last week's passage or story. It's, it's a single story. And as Rick mentioned, our section this morning is a formal defense that Jesus gave to accusations that came because of his healing work. So these passages, they shouldn't be viewed as two, but they should be viewed as one. Just from a practical standpoint, we break it up into two sermons so everyone can get to lunch, and we still have Sunday school volunteers that will actually stick around. Um, But Jesus, he's healing the man at the pool is just one of several examples where Jesus was accused of working on the Sabbath. Verse 16 says that they persecuted Jesus. And that comes from the Greek word uh, diako, which was used in literature as a legal prosecution. So he's not simply being persecuted as in treated poorly. He's actually being prosecuted, having charges that are leveled against him in a formal way, too. So what is Jesus on trial for? Verse 16 tells us he was doing these things. So that's plural, right? These things on the Sabbath. The preceding story we have is just one instance that typified what he customarily did on the Sabbath. And in each instance, Jesus had not broken God's law, but the Jewish interpretation of it. Jesus openly broke the Jews' overbearing and legalistic rules. The Jewish leaders, they had taken the few categories that God had expressly forbidden by God, and they expanded them to hundreds of what-if scenarios. To give an example, Exodus 34.21 says, um, it says that they prohibited them from plowing or harvesting on the Sabbath. The Jews, they want a specific black and white definition of, well, what is harvesting? So they define that as severing a plant from its source of growth. It seems reasonable, but it leads to conservative what-if interpretations. So just in case, the rabbinical law forbade people from climbing trees on the Sabbath because they were afraid of breaking off a branch and consider it harvesting that branch. So therefore, when when Jesus' disciples, when they're plucking heads of grain as they walk through a field, that was most certainly under the definition of harvesting under Jewish man's definition, their law. So the system of rules, it had become very legalistic, very detached from its original purpose of fostering that relationship with God. And the synagogue leaders, they couldn't genuinely answer Jesus when he would ask them, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? They were silent about it. They had completely missed the point. They had turned a blessing into a curse, and what was meant to set them apart from God, or for God, actually led to bitterness and exasperation. So it's in this context, this dynamic, that we see Jesus confronted here. However, we see Jesus, when he gives his answer in verse 17, it didn't help them understand. It only inflamed their anger to a desire now to actually kill Jesus, in verse 18. His reason for working was that God works... And if since God is his father, he can work too. And that's an outrageous claim. In doing so, he claimed equality with God. So forget about breaking the rabbinic interpretation of you know, Sabbath laws. Here is blasphemy of the worst kind, unless it's true. But we see Jesus, he's basically throwing gasoline on the fire, which is something he did more than once. This infuriating response was enough to bring Jesus before the Jewish leaders. So if you're reading verse 19 and you wonder who is them, when it says them, it's likely the religious authorities and a crowd of disgruntled Jews. The NASB translates verse 19 in a helpful way, saying, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them. And the word in verse 19 for answered, it has a very specific use. It only appears six other times, each of which is in an interrogation 
and three of which are when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. So here it's conveying a very formal defense against charges that were being made. So we can, we can picture Jesus being interrogated before religious authorities who want to know why Jesus felt that he could disregard their laws. And this kind, of, this kind of setting would lend itself to our passage being one of the longest uninterrupted speeches. Because Jesus isn't interacting with a public crowd. He's giving an official defense. So our passage here, Jesus is defending his Sabbath work and how he called God his own father. So if you look at your verses, um, you'll see that there's repeated themes on work. So verse 16, it says the Jews persecuted Jesus because he was doing these things. Verse 17, Jesus explained that he and his father worked on the Sabbath. And if you read verses 19 through 20, it says, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. Jesus is explaining that everything he does including miracles and works on the Sabbath, he does this because he's following his father's example. And as Rick mentioned last week, um, it had been long accepted that the father was sustaining the universe every day. It was continual. So there's no controversy in the idea that the father would work on the Sabbath. But similar to how it was Jesus who instructed the man to pick up his mat, Jesus is saying it's the father who's instructing Jesus to work on the Sabbath, which is something only God was allowed to do. Therefore, Jesus, his explanation of roles that we see in this passage is very helpful, but it's, it's all originating from this controversy. And just as the monologue is rooted in the narrative before, it's going to transition to the next portion of the story, or in our case, the next thematic section. So ours transfers to that of greater works that Jesus references in verse 20. Next up is chapter 6, which is about feeding the 5,000, about walking on water, and that's when Jesus talks about being the bread of life which ties into the statements that Jesus makes in verses 21 through 26, all centered about how he gives life and how life is found in him. So now that we've kind of looked at the background of our passage, how it serves to connect these, it's an official defense that transitions our narrative from controversy to greater works. So let's jump into what else we can learn from the monologue now. So let's look at our passage in two main parts, and then we're going to transition to application that stems from the study. So it's going to be helpful just to leave your Bible open. Just due to its length, we can't read it all at once and digest it all at once, so we'll step through it in portions. Um, I have two primary uh, meanings that I want to cover. They're uh, points two and three in your outline, and then two primary applications, which are points four and five in your outline. So starting with the meaning, point two is the unity, or the Father and the Son are united. So let's look at some of the things that Jesus shares about the Father and himself. I'm going to list them quickly, not because I expect us to process them all together, but I kind of want to convey the overall net importance of this uh, passage here and just how much is here. There's, there's a lot in a short space. It's very dense. So in no particular order, Jesus lists through and he, and he explains that Jesus and the Father, they're unified in their will. Jesus' goal is to obey his Father and honor him. The Father commands that all honor the Son, Jesus is subject to the Father's authority. They are different in role, yet equal in worth. The Father has delegated judgment to Jesus. Jesus and his Father have authority over eternal life. The Father sent Jesus and gave him his mission, and Jesus reflects and represents his Father. 
Now, probably no one would disagree with anything I just said right now, but we've all been taught that over a long period of time. But think about how much of this was brand new material to the people he's talking to. I mean, this is a lot to drop into one speech and into the fence here. But as was typical of Jesus, he conveys these deep and these startling ideas by beginning with a culturally relevant metaphor that was simple enough for a child to understand and deep enough for a teacher to just reflect on. So starting in verse 19, Jesus explains that he does his father's work, what he does and when he does it. So here Jesus actually uses an illustration of any son, a typical son, in an apprenticeship with his father. It's not expressly Jesus and God the Father. This even could be perhaps similar to how Jesus learned carpentry from Joseph. But the point isn't that Jesus doesn't know what to do without first looking at his father, but it's more so that in the same way that a son imitates his father, so does Jesus imitate God. However, Jesus is not simply watching and mimicking observed actions, but he's in lockstep with the father, and he does what, he, what the father does because of shared virtue and the sameness of nature. So this emphasis of apprenticeship imagery shouldn't be on the scene and the showing, but more so on the imitation and the similarity between the two. Jesus is explaining his unity with the Father. They are one and the same in character and in values. In other portions of the New Testament, Jesus clearly states that if you know the Son, you'll know the Father. And John records one of these exchanges in, verse 14, in chapter 14, of uh, verse 8. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the Son's life, it exegetes or it narrates the Father's character because he's one and the same with the Father. Jesus is also claiming to be God because of his identity. So we see that he's one with the Father, but he also now makes a claim on divinity because of his ability. We can safely deduce that Jesus is equal in honor and greatness with the Father, for if anyone were able to do whatever the Father does, without any qualification, if they can do whatever the Father can do, then he's equal in ability. And then, as if these two claims of identity and ability weren't enough, Jesus plainly identifies himself in verse 25 as the Son of God. This is one of only three places where Jesus does this in the Gospel of John, where he calls himself the Son of God. Jesus has made his point very clear, and his defense for working on the Sabbath is because he is God. And this is an incredible claim. And the Jews obviously heard him loud and clear, and they, they wanted to kill him for it. I want you to think about how different that is from today. Jesus still makes the same claim to be God and judge of every, every human soul. And yet so many people today are comfortable just to say, well, Jesus was probably just a great moral teacher. The Jews never said that about Jesus. To him, he was either the Messiah or a blasphemer, and there's no middle ground. Being a moral teacher and saying the things that Jesus said was an impossible option. So if you're here today and you're on the fence about Jesus' identity, Jesus is telling you to get off the fence, to make up your mind, because he's not leaving you any gray area at all. Jesus never said he was a moral teacher. He said he was God. He claimed to be living water, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life. He said he was the door, the shepherd of the sheep. He claimed to be the ancient of days, the co-creator of the world, the savior of mankind, the judge over people's souls, including your own. That's not something that a great moral teacher would say. 
C.S. Lewis wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who said he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. So you must make your choice. Either this man was the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him for being a demon, or you can fall at his feet for being Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. So simply put, you've probably heard it before, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And there is no other option. And the Apostle John, the author of this gospel, that's his purpose statement. He's writing to convince any who would read that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But just as Jesus is clear that he is God, he is also very clear that he submits to the Father. Jesus is not claiming equality with God in the sense of being some second rival deity, but in a spirit that's in complete unison with and submission to the Father. Jesus professed that he did nothing of his own accord. And yet, it's not as though that he reluctantly acted against his own will. He and the Father are wholly united in everything they do. They're in perfect sync. And we see Jesus, he repeatedly insists throughout the gospel that he never did or said anything on his own. Only once does Jesus actually say he did something on his own. It's in John 10, 17 through 18. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. His focus on the own accord is contrasting his will with mankind's action, not his will with the Father's will, because he's very quick to add a clarifying statement. He says, this charge I have received from my Father. And so while Jesus and the Father are in perfect unity, they still have very different roles. It is for the Father to initiate and the Son to obey. The Father sends and the Son goes. The Father bestows authority. The Son exercises authority. And the Son, he's representing, he's an earthly agent from the Father. And an agent is one that represents who sent him. So especially in the case of a firstborn son, in this case, the Son embodies the Father. And so Jesus reasons in verse 23 when he's talking to his accusers. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You can't honor the master, but not the agent. Likewise, you can't dishonor the agent without dishonoring the master. So Jesus is calling the Jews out on their folly. He's saying to them, you know, they're in an attempt. They're trying to uphold the father's honor. But yet they were dishonoring his agent who perfectly resembled his likeness. These two can't coexist. Now, Jesus could have stopped his defense at verse 20, explaining why he worked on the Sabbath. But he continued... So he referenced his divinity as a basis to have authority over the Sabbath, but now he takes that divinity and he assumes authority elsewhere, including over judgment and eternal life in verses 21 through 29. So Jesus having authority over giving life is quite different than a couple Old Testament prophets who had the ability or the opportunity to bring a few people back from the dead. Jesus is claiming that eternal life, not just earthly, physical life, but eternal life is granted to those who believe in him. And also, Jesus can exercise this divine prerogative whenever he wants, to whomever he will. This harkens back to the fourth verse of our gospel. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So how does one get this life here? The answer is so simple 
that it's been a stumbling block to many throughout history. Verse 24 states that it's simply a matter of hearing and believing and nothing more than that. Now, someone might say, well, not so fast. You haven't gotten to verse 29 yet. It shows that people are judged based on their works. And that's true. Verse 29 does say that people who did good lived, while those who did evil were judged. But let's think about what that measuring rod is when it comes to good versus evil. What is that based on? Jesus judges good based on belief and evil based on unbelief. And the original audience and readers here would not have seen a contradiction of faith versus works. Believing in Jesus is equated to coming to the light, where those who come to the light are those that do good in front of the light. They do good and true deeds. Those who practice evil things, they hide from the light. Jesus is very clear on what it is to do the good works in the next chapter. He says in verse 29 of chapter 6, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So people are judged based on their belief and trust in Jesus. And this decision has present, immediate consequences. Note that Jesus assumes everyone's default destiny is death. Death is a given. But belief removes you that from death and transitions you into life. Right then and there. And John 3.36 says a similar thing. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath remains. It was already there. But if you believe in the Son, you will pass from death into life. Not in the future, but now. Verse 24 reads, has passed from. That's past tense. So the judge has already pronounced a favorable verdict for you. Which brings us to point three in your outline. Just Jesus will judge. And that works with both interpretations. Only Jesus will judge, and he is a just judge. We already discussed what he judges against, only your belief in him. As to whom he will judge, says it'll be the dead, those who are in the tombs. So if you plan on dying one day, this includes you. And as for why Jesus is the judge, but not the Father, there are two reasons that are given in our passage. Verse 23 states, so that all may honor Jesus. Verse 27 states that he has the authority to do so. And while his accusers have prosecuted Jesus and put him on trial... Now Jesus, having already defended his actions, asserts he's not the defendant anymore, but the judge. The rest of Jesus' discourse unfolds as judgment that's aimed squarely at his opponents. Our passage lists several qualifications on why Jesus can judge. So these include, he is God's son, and God gave him the authority to do so. Also, he is the son of man, and because he is a man, he can judge his own kind. Jesus knows mankind's condition. He knows what we go through, and he lived it perfectly. And in regards to judging one another, Jesus will soon say later in John, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Well, that would be Jesus. Jesus gives another qualification in verse 30, that he's not seeking his own will. He's an impartial judge. And so we see that he's upholding righteousness, not his personal preference. And the last reason, the longest one that Jesus gives, is that he has supporting witnesses that show his credibility, why he can judge. And it's in this section of giving witnesses that Jesus becomes bold and drives it home. In the prior section, if you look, Jesus refers to himself in the third person, always as the Son. But now, from verse 30 on, he switches and talks only in the first person, as in I, me, and my. 
So the focus now shifts from the Father's delegated authority to Jesus' own authority, as proved by five witnesses. The first witness that he calls to the proverbial stand goes unnamed. The the witness is simply referred to as another. And later, Jesus refers to this witness as one that is greater than John. In the broader context of this passage, this witness is undoubtedly the Father. And he explicitly references the Father in verse 37. The Father, he does or he did testify of Jesus' ministry at the baptism, and he will again at the uh, transfiguration verbally, but Jesus has something else in mind. This is hearkening back to his like-father-like-son ministry dynamic. They do the same thing. The Father gives Jesus works to do. Jesus does them. And that's evidence enough there that the Father is a witness on Jesus' credibility. The second witness he calls upon is John the Baptist. John said, or Jesus said of John that no one has been born that is greater than John, but here we see Jesus downplay the value of human testimony because he has four superior witnesses. However, John is a prominent and present witness. He's either in prison by now or maybe even just recently beheaded in the last few weeks beforehand. But the point is everybody knew who John was. His witness had run its course. It was bright and brief, and people enjoyed him. Mark opened his gospel saying that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. He was big news, but it was brief. John's whole ministry climaxed in a single day when he baptized Jesus, and then he quickly faded into the background. We see immediately, like moments after baptizing Jesus, two of John's own disciples leave him and follow Jesus. Several months after baptizing Jesus, John's in prison, and several months later, John is dead. John was very aware of his brief purpose to point away from himself and toward Jesus. And when John was told by his few remaining disciples that all are going to him, John rejoiced, and his remark is instructive to us all. He said, he must increase, and I must decrease. The third witness uh, that Jesus identifies with were the works uh, that he had performed. Jesus' works that testified that he was sent by the Father and approved of by him. There's no agent of God that could do miracles and works on their own. This, was, this was source came from God, and their purpose was to validate that individual as an agent of God. In all through Bible times, people didn't debate the existence of God. That was a given. That didn't need to be proven. But mir- So miracles, they weren't there to prove that God existed. They were there to validate the messenger sent from God. And we see uh, Nicodemus, when he comes to Jesus... On behalf of the Pharisees, he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They didn't particularly like his teaching or understand it, but they couldn't deny that Jesus was a teacher from God. Jesus also offered up his works as reassurance of his Messiahship to John the Baptist when he was in prison. It records in uh, Matthew, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So similar to how Jesus is presenting these good works to John as evidence for his divinity, now he's presenting these works as a defense, uh, as a defense for his divinity. Although the Jews are outraged with Jesus' claims, they can't deny that God is working through him and that he's authenticating Jesus' ministry 
through amazing signs and miracles. And the works, they do result in amazement, but surprise can either be pleasant or unpleasant. So in this instance, we see the opponents want to kill him. So as Ramsey remarks, their amazement is more like dismay than it is delight. Now Jesus, his fourth witness, is how the scriptures testify of him. The Jews, they were very intentional and scholarly in how they studied the scriptures. They weren't casual about it. So Jesus, he didn't rebuke them for a lack of effort. He didn't critique them in terms of not not actually putting in the time or effort, but he critiqued their hardness of heart. He said that they had missed the point. Jesus' comment, he says to them, because you think that in them you have eternal life, that shows that the Jews, they were actively searching and expecting to find eternal life in them, but they were wrong. There's no inherent salvation in Scripture alone, but there's a map to the Savior. So earlier in this Gospel, we see Philip, he correctly used the Scriptures to find the Savior. He announces to Nathanael, he says, we have, found, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus insisted there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the Scriptures if you miss the life-giver that they point to. And this reminded me of a great uh, Spurgeon quote that actually Justin uh, Schroeder shared on Facebook a few days ago. fits great with this point. Spurgeon said, I may know all the doctrines of the Bible, but unless I know Christ, there is not one of them that can save me. And so when Jesus calls his fifth and final witness, he actually turns the tables on his accusers, and Jesus puts them on trial now. And this was actually customary in Jewish trials that if the accusers were found to be making false accusations, they could in turn be found on the defense and subject to penalty. So we see Jesus refute their false claims, and now he's making claims on them. Jesus moves from defendant to judge and assigns Moses as the prosecutor. Jesus chose the very person that they had venerated and they relied on as their own mediator. So verses 46 and 47, they explain that Moses wrote of Jesus. The Jews should have known better. They should have expected this. Abraham's response to the rich man in Shoal in uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 31, has a very similar message. He says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. At the judgment, Moses will testify, but not in their favor, yet against them. Moses switched from an anticipated advocate to an authoritative accuser. So in putting the Jews on trial, Jesus describes a very sad condition of them and of mankind in general in verses 42 through 47. It says, Jesus knew what was in them. And it was not a love of God, but a love of self. A love of glory and attention and worth that's derived from man-centered performance not in God's glory, not in God's character, and not in God's provision. Jesus calls them out for rejecting him, for not loving God, for mishandling the scripture. They studied the scriptures, but they defended all the wrong things. They corrupted justice and left God's way. In the end, they devised their own empty, self-made religion that crucified Jesus as a religious duty. However, I want you to think about what these Jewish leaders were like, probably on a day-to-day basis. I don't suppose that they were especially evil or villainous. It's not like they would go kick puppies or smash flower beds for fun. But I think they simply loved themselves more than God. They put themselves first. 
They turned divine love, what God had given them, into dutiful legalism. So consider this. How, how different are they than most people today? What makes the antagonist of our passage so different from your neighbor or your coworker? My personal opinion is the answer is not much. But Christian, what, what makes the antagonist of our passage so different from you? I would say probably only Jesus and grace. I think any human left to themselves will fail to see God's worth and will put themselves first and seek their own glory, which is what they did. So to summarize our passage, we saw Jesus move from defense to offense. Jesus explained that he had authority to work on the Sabbath because he is God. His divine authority wasn't only at the Sabbath, though. It extended over judgment and eternal life. And although the Jewish leaders thought they had put a blasphemer on trial for breaking the Mosaic law, it turned out that the Son of God and judge of the universe was now presiding over their own trial and calling Moses to testify against them. So when we think about it today, who's on trial today? This is point four. The reader's on trial. We are. The reader is left to make up their mind about Jesus, either to believe and obey, passing from death into life, or to be self-sufficient in your own rules and to face the judge of the world and be measured against God's perfect law. Perhaps you've studied world religions. Maybe you've even read the whole Bible and you think you've got it figured out. I've heard this many times before. Jesus is one of many ways to heaven. Or maybe you say he's a good teacher. But that Jesus wasn't really as narrow-minded as he's portrayed in the Bible or says of himself. Maybe you think you have a system of good works or of loving others that you plan to rely on. Note that his accusers also thought they were in the right. They were defending God's holy name. They were upholding their law. They had Moses on their side. But Jesus calls his five witnesses that testified on his account and against them. The Jews sought life by a system that was centered around man and doing good works. But their law could not save them. It could only condemn them. And yet, when the Savior came to free them from, their, from that law, they dug in. They retreated into their shell of self-confidence. Not because they thought that they were already perfect, but because they sought glory in man's rules. They got glory and attention from feeling like they had it put together. And if you are trusting in man's rules or in mankind, their system, you will be accused in the end. They were trusting in themselves, not on God. But the Jews had nothing to stand on in the end. In the end, no man has anything to stand on on their own. And if you are not trusting in Jesus today, you have nothing to stand on. If you plan to rely on your own works, then you will be judged by your own works. But note that the measuring rod is set at perfection. And anything less than absolute perfection merits eternal judgment. When the Bible speaks of eternal judgment, that is torment and active punishment forever. It's not the annihilation of your soul while the saved go on to live forever while you cease. Every soul goes on forever. It's immaterial. It's outside time and space. It doesn't go away. So it's not a question of whether your soul exists after, after death. It's a question of in what condition it will exist. So take heart, though. There is a reason why we call this the Gospel of John. Gospel comes from two old English words. When they put together, it means good news. Eternal judgment is terrible news. But it's not new news. Eternal judgment is the default. It's where everybody starts. The good news is what Jesus said in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever 
hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So if you are worried that you're still facing judgment, you don't have to. You can't fix it. The price is too costly to pay, but you don't even have to pay it. Jesus paid it all. He took care of it already. All you have to do is believe, to put your trust in the Son of God, to believe his word and to know that he did already what you could never do for yourself. You don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to understand all the Bible. You just have to hear his word and believe in him. And then you will not come into judgment. You will pass from death into life. That'll, that would happen now. And that is the good news, and that's for whoever will listen. So for point five, for those who have listened, for those who do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, for those who have already passed from death to life, what does this all mean to you? Christian, what are you to do with this passage here that we have? It doesn't really have any imperatives. It's not focused on instruction on how to live your life. It's theological. And I thought about this for a while myself, thinking, how should I live my life differently after today, having studied this? And so let me ask you, when you reflect on what Jesus said, how does your heart and mind respond to this passage? When you think of Jesus as the divine, life-giving judge, do you marvel? Do you marvel that he would give his divine life to spare you from his own righteous judgment? Do you marvel that you can actually approach the throne of grace with confidence and fear no condemnation? Are you amazed that you've already been guaranteed eternal life right now and for nothing that you've done? You brought nothing to the table. When you think on what Jesus said of himself, do you worship? Do you worship Jesus as God knowing that he is worthy of praise? Knowing that to honor Jesus is also to honor the Father? Do you worship the way, the truth, and the life the guardian and overseer of your soul? Does your heart well up in praise when you think that you get to pray to and worship the one to whom all of Scripture pointed to? And when you think on what Jesus has done for you, aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that the Father sent his Son to be your Savior, to know that your soul drank from living water and will never thirst again. Your soul has eaten from the bread of life. It doesn't have to hunger after the trivial things of this world. Are you joyful to be indwelt by the only thing, the only substance that could ever fill you? And when you see the sun's submission, will you defer? Will you defer to Jesus in life's difficult details? Will you hand over your plans and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done? Will you honor Jesus by acknowledging him as God and submitting to him? To his teaching, do you recall that your life is not your own, but you've been bought with a price? And will you do nothing of your own accord, but only what Scripture has shown you? I like to think about this. Like, if the omniscient, authoritative Jesus deferred to his Father, how about you, who cannot control or predict what will happen in the next hour, will you defer to him? And lastly, when you consider all these witnesses that Jesus called together, that testify to his greatness, don't you want to point to him too? Don't you want to point to him and not yourself? Don't you want to draw attention to his goodness, to his mercy, to his far-reaching glory, and not the feeble accomplishments commingled with failings that we have? Can you, like John the Baptist, shine for him and say, he must increase and I must decrease? When you read this passage, how does your heart and mind respond? So please stand as we close in prayer.
Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you every day for sending your Son to save us from ourselves. Um, help us to live lives that point to Jesus and honor you. Help us to be grateful for all that you've done to remember our current identity that's been made possible only because of what you did and nothing on our account. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. We need it very much. Amen. Thank you.